Good morning, church family. I always count it a privilege when I have the opportunity to open God's Word and to share that. And I hope that this morning, as we go through the passage of Scripture that God has laid on my heart that I have been studying through recently, uh, in fact, as we have kicked off the recent youth program with the Wednesday night program and, do, and doing the equipping elective on Sundays, this is a passage that I was really working through and trying to decide how I was going to solidify and communicate some of the thoughts of this passage to the youth staff. So, welcome youth staff. Uh, you all get to hear it today. Uh, so, I, so I, I'm just thankful for this opportunity. I'm thankful that Steve called me yesterday and asked if I would take this opportunity, and I, and I appreciate uh, his confidence that I could do this. And I'm also thankful for the privilege that we have in doing this. If you can take your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Philippians. Let me give you just a brief historical context of this church here at Philippi. Because the context of this passage is going to play into exactly how Paul is going to work his way through this passage. Uh, This church at Philippi, there's a large number of the population here in Philippi, uh, which is a city in northern Greece, but the large population of this city is soldiers. They are Roman citizens who are soldiers, but because of their allegiance to a losing general in the Civil War, have been displaced from Rome and have been relocated to Philippi. So they recognize their citizenship. They recognize, and you'll see that term citizenship used in this passage, but they they recognize that they are citizens of Rome even though they can't live there. So that's the context. They're also military people. There are people that are used to having a mission, having a command or giving them instructions, going out into battle and accomplishing the mission that is given to them. That's who's, who's in this city. The city was, was actually founded by Philip of Macedon in the first, fourth century BC because of the resources, the gold, the silver mines in the area. And it's right on the major trade route going through Asia Minor called the Via Ignatia. And on this trade route, he, he wanted to protect that he could get commerce back and forth across this road, so he placed a large contingent of soldiers in this city. So this is a military city. The church was founded on Paul's second missionary journey. As we read in Acts chapter 16, you see Paul comes into the the city of Philippi on the first Sabbath. He goes outside the city. He begins teaching with a group of of Jewish believers that are gathered. The one that we have named for us is Lydia from Thyatira. She's a seller of purple, but she has been relocated to Philippi. She has this congregation of believers that are gathering with her. Paul joins them. He explains to them the gospel. They are saved. It says Lydia and her household are saved and baptized. There's a servant girl, though, in this city who, under demonic possession, has a great insight into who Paul and Silas are. She follows Paul as he's preaching and teaching the gospel around this city, and she starts yelling and proclaiming something. In Acts chapter 16, it tells us that as she, she's following them, this is what she cries out. These men are servants. Now, realizing these soldiers in the city are servants of the emperor. And she says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What a gospel testimony right there by this demonic-possessed young lady as she follows them around. But this does not make the people of the city happy. So they attack Paul and Silas. They beat them. They drag them before the magistrates who have them beaten, cast into prison where Paul and Silas now are in prison. And what do we find them doing in Acts chapter 16? They are praying and singing while they're in stock. If you know the story, you know what happens at midnight, right? There's an earthquake. Now, that earthquake would have been felt by everybody in that city. And when that earthquake happens, the prison doors are burst open, their shackles are broken open, and they could walk out of the prison. But do they? No, they stay there. The Philippian jailer, realizing what's happened to all of his prisoners, he's given this firm charge of keeping them in prison, could have escaped. 
gets ready to take his own life. As he's getting ready to take his own life, Paul cries out to him and says, don't take your life, we are all here. The jailer then goes and gets a light. He comes into the jail. He comes before Paul and Silas and kneels down. And he says this very important question that he has. What must I do to be saved? And Paul's simple answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The church starts. The next day, Paul and Silas, the magistrates, pull them out of jail. Say, okay, you can leave. We don't want you back here, so get out of town. They leave, but you know what? The believers that have started in this city now begin to learn what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a Christian. They send people like Epaphroditus to go minister to Paul so that word can come back. In fact, he's bearing this letter with him as he comes back to Philippi. And so this church is is being grounded and founded and is growing. And Paul is having as much of an influence as he can on this church. And as Paul writes this letter, we know he is writing it from prison. But he, though he is physically separated from them, Notice some of the terms that are used in chapter 1 to describe how he views the church that is at Philippi. In verse 5, he calls them partners. In verse 6, he says that there is a good work that is started and that will be completed, showing that they are progressing in their spiritual walk. Verse 7, he calls them partakers with him. And in verses 8 to 30, we see that he sees this church as striving side by side with him in the faith of the gospel. That's an important thing to note, that Paul here is noticing that this church, though physically, geographically separated from him, is a partner with him. So this morning, as I talked to Pastor Steve yesterday afternoon and evening about the passage I wanted to look at, I really wanted to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. But as I started looking at this last night and thinking, how can I do this passage justice and, and communicate some of the things that, are, 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 that Paul's trying to communicate here, I, I realized that in verse 12, I have that expositional bomb that's thrown on us. That simple word, therefore. Because if you ignore that word, therefore, that you lose the context. So that word, therefore, now is going to back us up, back into the passage, and we'll eventually get to verse 12. So we're going to try to do this in rapid succession this morning. I'm thankful for the folks in the booth this morning who have loaded some slides that I gave to them. So hopefully we can all track along with this. But I, I want us to back up to the beginning of this statement that is referenced with therefore. And when I do that, I really go back to verse 27 of chapter 1. And let me just read that for you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There we see that term, striving, side by side. He recognizes that this church is striving side by side with him. So, in trying to outline this passage this morning, I have not served in the military, but I want to try to, just like Paul, put some of this in the military context. Okay. So as we look at this this morning, I want us to look first at what is this mission objective. And I think verse 27 gives us that mission objective. That mission objective right there, if we had to very simply put that in a mission statement, is to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel, as we see defined in the New Testament, is the statement of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ so he could provide salvation for us. So what Paul is saying here in verse 27 is that everything we do in our life should be worthy of that calling that we have, that we are redeemed. And it should also be that we are striving to show to the lost world around us 
Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the impact it can have in our life and it can have in their life. As Paul continues here with the Philippians, he says that he wants them to stand firm in this one spirit. He's talking there of their unity and that they're not frightened. He's going to get into this a little bit later as he, as, as he, as he gives them some more statements regarding this mission that they should be accomplishing. He also talks about how he wants his joy replenished. What, what, what's Paul speaking about this? If you know about this church, could you imagine being the two ladies mentioned in chapter 4? Here's a church that Paul has worked with in the past. They have strived side by side with him together in the gospel, and now there is some division in the church. And in chapter 4, he actually calls out two women by name because of the division they're causing. And Paul says, you know what? I want my joy restored. My joy is lacking with you as a church at Philippi because we're not striving as well together as we could for the benefit of the gospel. And he's kind of giving this to them as a checkup to say, hey, let's go back, let's look at our mission, let's come back and let's focus on what is important to us and what is important is the gospel. Not these schisms, these divisions inside the church, but what is important to us is proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Christ. So we see his mission and, he, and he's desiring that they would fill, replenish, refill his joy. And then look at verse 28. He gives here some of their vulnerability. Any good leader of a mission is going to identify for his team where they are vulnerable. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, not frightened. So the vulnerability there would be fear, that they would be afraid. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, because what is that when you're not afraid? Look at how that turns around. If you're not afraid, this is a clear sign to your opponents that they will, of their destruction, that they're going to be destroyed. But to you, it is a firm sign of your salvation. And where's our salvation come from? It comes from God, right there in the passage for us. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should also not believe in him only, but should also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. What is the other vulnerability they have? That when suffering comes, that they would quit. And what does Paul say? Remember, he's writing from a prison in Rome. He is suffering. The church has sent Epaphroditus to go and minister to him, to help him. And what has happened to Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus fell sick. It even says not close to death. And here Paul says, you know what? There is going to be in this battle, there's going to be times that they're suffering. But even in the midst of suffering, I realize that that is a vulnerability, but that we can overcome. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 the Apostle John writes, little children, you, have, you are from God and you have what? You've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There is a person as Christians that dwells inside us that even in the midst of when we are afraid or when we're suffering, there is a person who can give us that confidence to move forward in the mission that God has called us to so that we can spread that good news, that gospel of Christ. We have to look back as well to the context in this passage. If we go just before verse 27, we're looking there at verses 20, 29 to, or 21 to 26. We have that you know, verse that many of us have memorized as children, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What is Paul saying in that passage, though? He's saying, if I die, it's okay because I'm in a much better place. I'm with my Savior. But if I live, if God keeps me on this earth, there is a mission that I must accomplish and while I am here on this earth, it is good for me to be able to accomplish that mission. And that is beneficial to you as a church because I will have the opportunity to continue to help you to grow. 
So Paul sees that even in his death, yeah, that'd be great, but even more so in his life, he has the opportunity to spread the gospel. Chapter 2, where Braden started to read today, we start seeing this team identified. And you can go into battle. Opposite sides will wear different uniforms. So there's easy identification of which side you're on. Here Paul is going to identify this team that is engaged in this living our life worthy of the gospel. First thing he says here in verse 1, that they, we are encouraged in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ. Interesting use of the word that he uses here because the, the word translated encouraged is the feminine word form of a, of a, of a word. And the masculine form of that, um, that, that, that word paraclesis, the masculine form is an advocate or an intercessor. So I think what Paul is trying to communicate to us here is that we are encouraged because of Christ, who is, that word closely related, our intercessor or our advocate. Who do we have as condemned sinners who stands before the throne of a holy God and pleads our cause? It is Jesus Christ who has sacrificed himself for us. Are you encouraged in Christ? 1 John 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have, here we see that word, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He stands before God. He pleads our cause, not because of what we've done, but because of his completed work on the cross. Second way he identifies members of this team, that we are comforted by unconditional love. John 15, verse 13 tells us, Greater love has no one than this, and someone lays down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He unconditionally laid down his life. Have you been comforted by the fact that your penalty for sin has been paid? You comforted by the fact that you don't need to pay that death penalty for your sin because the love of God expressed through the sacrifice of his only begotten son, sound like John 3.16, right? His, the sacrifice of his son on the cross can comfort us. Or do we live in fear, knowing the judgment of God, and we're afraid because the penalty for our sin has not been paid? Third way he identifies members of this team is that they participate or they fellowship in the Spirit. Notice in your text there, you probably have the word spirit capitalized. That is not a mistake. The anarthrist noun here is used frequently in the New Testament to refer to that third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the person of God who indwells us at the moment of salvation and guides us, directs us, and leads us. Are we participating with the Holy Spirit who has been given to indwell us? The term that could also be used here is fellowship. The simple, easy-to-memorize definition of fellowship is two men in a ship. Picture that. Let me picture it for you. Last summer, I had the privilege of going with five other men from this church to go fishing in Alaska in Prince William Sound. Six of us, three boats. So we had fellowship. Two men in a boat, right? That's fellowship. Simple definition of fellowship. What happens when we're in a boat? You know what? We have to share responsibilities. We can't both captain the boat. Okay? If we're both trying to steer the direction of that boat, it's not going to go well. There has to be 
responsibility. Somebody's going to do that. And you know what? The person that's not driving the boat, if the gear starts to move around, can't just sit there and say, hey, look at your lousy driving. You're going to lose your fishing rod. Now, it'd probably be nice if he reaches out and grabs it, right? It keeps it from going overboard. We fish the same inlets. We see the same bears. We share the same bait. We share meals together. We share tips while we're fishing with each other. We assist each other in landing the fish. And if the unfortunate would happen, which it did not, and if our boat would spring a leak, guess what? We're in it together. We're fellowshipping. Or if a bear that we see on the side of the shore decides he wants to come and have us as a human sandwich, we're stuck together. And now we have a responsibility to protect each other and to preserve each other's life. And we will work together as a team because we are having that close fellowship. We are two men in a boat. You know, we might joke about it. We might say, hey, you know what? I'm carrying a firearm with me because if we get close to bears, I'm going to shoot you in the foot. That way I don't have to worry about the bear. Okay, I can just outrun you. Okay, we might joke about that, but you know what? If push comes to shove, Jared, I wouldn't have shot you in the foot. Okay, just saying. Uh, yeah, but, but we, we can get to enjoy those experiences together. And we have that fellowship. And you know what? Now that we've had that fellowship together, we have a common bond. We have something in common. We have a way that we can work together. We have, we have experiences that we've shared. We've shared life together. We can now work together in ministry because we have this common bond. And we can tell stories about that fellowship. I put the verse up there, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, speaking here of how we can have that commonality and that unity together because of the Spirit. It says, for in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. And now Paul's going to address some of the divisions that, that he saw as he's writing to the church at Corinth. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free. So whatever the division is, Paul says, remember, we are all together in one body and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That Holy Spirit that indwells me is the same Holy Spirit that indwells you as a believer. That Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that will then help us and guide us and direct us and lead us toward a common goal in a common purpose to accomplish a common mission, which is to live our life worthy of the gospel. Peter O'Brien in his commentary on Ephesians, when he's speaking here of the partition participation in the spirit he says that this participation in the spirit should sound the death knell to all factions and party spirit for it is by this one spirit that they are all baptized into one body we have to recognize that because we have a common holy spirit we are on the same team we are working together to accomplish the same mission so my question as we're identifying this team would be, are you participating with other believers in following the leading of the Holy Spirit to live a life worthy of the gospel? The fourth and final description he gives here for this team is that these people exhibit affection and sympathy. We could say compassion and mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 to 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Have you experienced the mercy of God? Who that when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, he has made you alive again to God. And if we have experienced that mercy, as believers, we should have that same mercy as we look to those around us and share that mercy of God with them. We should be merciful people. So if he's identifying the team, my question would be, do these four descriptions describe you? Are you encouraged in Christ? Are you comforted by that unconditional love? Do you participate in the Spirit and do you exhibit affection and sympathy to those around you?
He's going to transition in verse 2. I say to, I, I, I see this as being identifying here our team's strength. How can we be strong together as a team or how are we going to be able to accomplish our mission? The first thing he says there is that we need to be of the same mind. This would be of the same intent. We're going to have a common purpose. He says we have the same love and this is completely referencing back to chapter 1 where we see the unconditional love of God. And he says we should have that same unconditional love for others because just as God unconditionally loved us in our sinful state, we should unconditionally love others. We should have that same love. We should be of full accord or we should have complete unity. It's interesting the words that are used here. It's a compound Greek word, sum, meaning the same. And then the, the second part of that compound word in the Greek is suke, where we get our English word psyche. We have the same psyche. We're going to have the same mental thought and process as we move together. We're going to move together as one team. And then he amplifies that a little bit more by saying one mind. We have one thinking process. The head of the church is whom? Jesus Christ. And by him all the parts jointly fit together. If we are united in our purpose of serving our commander, Jesus Christ, we will have this common mind. A.T. Robertson, in writing about this passage, says that this one mind is thinking the one thing, like clocks that strike at the same moment. Perfect intellectual telepathy. Identity of ideas and harmony of feelings. We are all going at the same time. I don't know if you've ever been in an old-time clock shop where there's lots of clocks on the wall. And a good shop master will take the time so that all of his clocks synchronously chime on the top of the hour together. That they will all tick off the seconds synchronously. That you don't walk in and you just hear all this chaotic stuff going on in the shop, but it is all together. And that is exactly what A.T. Robertson is saying this passage is talking about. That we are all harmoniously walking together. You picture a military group marching step in step systematically, by cadence, together to accomplish a common goal. Working together to live, to spread the gospel. Question for you is, do you have any close friends? Somebody whom you love spending time with? Maybe you have a common passion and you've spent so much time together. That as you've spent time together, you start to finish each other's sentences. You know what the other person is thinking. You know what they're going to need as you get into certain situations and you can complement one another. That's exactly what this passage is saying. This team strength is in us being completely 100% united to where we can function together to live worthy of the gospel. And then he takes a parenthetical, I believe, here in verses 5 through 11, and we could spend at least one Sunday on this passage, so we're not going to. I'm going to summarize this next passage, okay? Uh, verses 5 down through 11. And let me just simply put this as, as he's, describing to us how as this military group we can live worthy of the gospel, he's going to illustrate it for us with the example of our founder. So this is simply just the example of our founder. We often refer to this uh, in theological terms as the kenosis passage. The kenosis being the Greek word where we get the English translation emptying, where Jesus Christ willingly set aside the privileges of his, of his deity 
so that he could come and live on this earth as a sinless human, die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. If you're in uh, the teen class today or in the adult class as we talk about the deity of Christ, this passage very well may come up. Because this is important where Christ, he was still 100% divine while he was here on this earth. But he willingly emptied, set it aside, so that he could accomplish the plan of God. This is also an early church hymn, just like we sang hymns this morning. This is a, this, these verses are attributed because of the, the, the literary structure of them and how they kind of are different from the rest of what Paul has here. That this is probably an early church hymn. This is something they would have sang in church as they identified who Jesus Christ did and what he did. And let me just summarize this quickly for us. Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, set aside the privileges of, privileges of his deity. He chose to live among sinful men, whom he had created, experiencing their rejection, He obediently died a cruel death on the cross, though he committed no crime, so that he might be obedient and fulfill the Father's sacrificial plan and provide complete atonement to reconcile us as sinful men to a holy God. And someday he will be exalted by the Father because of his act of obedience. So this this hymn basically shows us that Jesus' life of, of obedience it wasn't easy or convenient. It would have been much more easy and convenient for him just to stay in heaven, enjoy the angels ministering to him. But he went, even though it was hard and it cost him something to the cross. Think about that. Divine God, who spoke the world into existence, could have spoke and removed himself from the cross and annihilated everybody around him, by the way. There's nothing that kept him there. But his divine nature put his humanity in submission and he willingly offered himself there on the cross. He's our example of the humility and self-denial that's required to accomplish God's plan for the salvation of mankind. If we're arrogant and protect ourselves and want to do our own thing, we will not live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Then we get to verse 12, which is the verse I really wanted to start at, right? And here I'm simply going to put this as, this is our call to action. Here Paul is going to say, here's what we are to do as a team, as we mobilize to live our lives worthy of the gospel. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not as in my presence, but also, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's he say here? Put your salvation to work. We see it used other times in scripture, produce fruit. Produce something with this new life that you've been given that is profitable, that will bring glory to God. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says, Thus we conclude that this is an exhortation to common action, urging the Philippians to show forth the graces of God in their lives and to make their eternal salvation fruitful in the here and now as they fulfill their responsibilities to one another as well as to non-Christians. Notice I said we are to use our salvation and put it to work. I did not say that we are to obtain salvation through our works. There is a distinction that needs to be made. For Christians do not work for their salvation, but rather we work because of our salvation. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's not of works. It is a gift of God and not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then we sometimes 
stop there and don't go to verse 10. But I think it's important for us to go to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's, a, there's works that are required after we come to that point of salvation. Our salvation needs to be put to work. So we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk, what, what, that we should walk in them. There's effort. We should walk in these good works because of our salvation. And then he tells us, how should we do it? With fear and trembling. It's interesting, if we learn about Paul, we know that he was a religious leader of his day. He often references back phrases that are used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that his readers would have known or could have read. And he uses here, he's the only Old Testament writer to use this phrase with fear and trembling. Rather, he's the only New Testament writer to use this phrase. And it follows the pattern that's used in the Septuagint to describe the awe and reverence that God's people had when they were in his presence and seeing his mighty works. We see it first in the Song of Moses at the beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, after they leave Egypt, looking back at the awe and reverence that the people have because of the mighty works that God did in bringing them out of Egypt. The awe and reverence that is inspired on the heathen nations around them because of what God did as he brought his people out of Egypt. It's used at the end of Deuteronomy as well to show the awe and reverence that God's people should have as God is now dwelling with them in their midst. So he uses this phrase to describe the awe and the reverence that we have for God. Our salvation should cause us to have awe and reverence for what God has done for us. If I had to summarize this, I would say put your salvation to work because God is working through you to what? To accomplish his plan. And what is his plan? Salvation of souls. Salvation of my soul and the salvation of every soul of every person that I run into contact with. So I should be living my life worthy of the gospel. He gives a warning here. And we can't neglect this warning because it's very important. Paul's going to come back to this warning in chapter 4 when he addresses these two women. But his warning that he'll address more specifically here is the command that is also applicable to us today in the contemporary church. He says, don't complain or cause division. The words here is very interesting as well. He also uses phrases that are used back in the Septuagint to refer to the grumbling of the nation of Israel as they're in the wilderness. And they rise up against Moses when they complain about the manna, when they complain about not having water. There's grumbling and complaining. And, and as Paul uses this, I think he's using the Israelites as an example for us. And what we have to recognize as we look back at the Old Testament examples of where the people complained about the leaders that God appointed, that when we quarrel with God's appointed human leaders, God sees it as the equivalent of a quarreling against him. He punished the people in the nation of Israel because of their discontent. Yeah, he provided for them. But they, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness that they did not have to spend because of some complaining, some quarreling, some division. And primarily when they refused to go into the city of Jericho because they were afraid. They were afraid. Think about that. They were afraid to go into, to cross the Jordan River when they just had a song that Moses wrote about the awe and the reverence of God because of his mighty acts. Does that sound like us? We forget the power that is in us. We shrink back in fear 
And then when we shrink back in fear, we start to complain, start to wonder what God is doing, and we can cause division within the church. And in chapter 4, Paul's going to flat out address this with these two ladies. Then he tells us to be free from blame and, and innocent. And in the context here, it's in the context of this grumbling and complaining. And so I really believe he's saying here, be free from blame and innocent because your actions are without grumbling and without argument. Paul here also describes that he desires the church of Philippi to be children of God without blemish. Do you ever have a parent tell you to remember who your father is as you left your house with a group of friends? Remember who your parents are. Remember who your dad is. It's the same thing for us as Christians. Remember who our Heavenly Father is. And he reminds them that they live in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. This phrase is used in the Old Testament to describe the Israelites when they are stubborn when they're unfaithful. And in the New Testament, it is used to describe those who harden themselves against Jesus' message. It's describing that of the Jews in Matthew chapter 17, 17, when they refuse Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Today, we have to realize that we live in a culture that is contrary to the design, character, and nature of God. It is truly a perverse culture we live in, contrary to the straight ways of God. Paul then tells his his readers that he wants them to shine as lights or as stars in the world. And that phrase there, in the world, is consistently used in reference to mankind who lives in darkness. And we are to be visible to them. We are to be the light. If you go out on a moonless night and the stars are out, you can still see because of the stars in the sky. Stars can be used for navigation to get us on the right course. That is exactly what we as believers are to be. In the midst of of the battle, we are also to hold firm to the word of life, this gospel message, the Bible. The Bible has the answers for all of the challenges we're going to face in this battle. And as we come across hardships in battle and we are struggling, maybe with fear, or we want to shrink back, or we don't want to move forward, we can cling to the truth of the Bible and have that confidence to do what God has called us to do and to live our life the way God has called us to live. And then he gives here at the end of this chapter, or at verses 16 to 18, He gives us here the reward that they will have if they accomplish this. If if they follow this call to action, the reward is going to be they are going to rejoice together. They're going to have common joy when living worthy of the gospel of Christ. Notice here, he also gives a progression in these verses that whether they're running or whether they're laboring that hard, slow, just slogging it out, or even to the point that he might be offered as a drink offering, depicting here the death of a martyr that no matter where you are in this process, running, laboring, or facing imminent death because of what the gospel has called you to do, what Christ has called you to do, you can rejoice. Joy here is not just happiness. It's not because of circumstances. It's despite our circumstances. So as we conclude today, let me provide another answer to the question that we've been asked the last two weeks. Why bother with the church? My simple answer is the church is called to action. The local church is my team where I can be equipped, where I can help train others, and I can participate with others in the gospel ministry. The local church, through its leaders, is called to organize a local group of believers around a common cause in an effort to spread the gospel. So my question to you individually is, how are you participating as a member of the team to live worthy of the gospel here at Highlands Baptist Church.
Prayer and financial support are necessary, but we cannot neglect the actual physical action that is needed to spread the gospel and to train saints. There's many opportunities here at Highlands where you can actively participate in ministry. And I will say that I'm pleased to be a member of a church where there are many members actively involved in ministry. Let me just highlight three ministries right now that my wife and I are passionate about and how this fits into this model. Sean mentioned this morning the children's ministry, where we teach and we proclaim the simple truths of Scripture, key memory verses to our young people, to benefit not only just our young people, but adults. We have adults that are up here today without the distraction of young children because there's workers downstairs willing to work with the children that are down there. When we have a children's program, the goal is not just for a performance. But the Christmas program this year is an opportunity for our children to invite their family, their friends, neighbors, relatives to come to the church for a program, yes, but to hear the gospel. It gives our children the opportunity to work together as a team to tell the story of Jesus, to overcome their fear of singing or speaking in front of a crowd, which, you know what, they'll probably mess up. There'll probably be a lot of twirling and a lot of distraction. But 20 years from now, we hope that some of those young boys and girls that are going to be up here on that Sunday will be the ones up here in the music team leading us in congregational singing, standing perhaps where I am this morning, being able to expound the word of God because they have overcome their fear of standing up in front of people and have recognized that when they have a message from God, they can communicate that to others. That's what we're trying to accomplish with the children's ministry. Maybe they'll stand up and pray or read scripture as Brayden did. That's the purpose of the children's ministry. And the team, teen ministry, as we're assembling the team there, I constantly are, tell, are reminding everybody that we're trying to come alongside the parents of our teenagers. That as they begin their reasoning process of processing what Scripture says and how to apply it to their life, that we can come alongside these parents and take these truths of Scripture that they've been taught as young children, that they've been taught here at church, that they've been taught at home, and that we can begin to allow them the opportunity, the laboratory, to ask those hard questions, to take those questions and to apply scripture to those hard everyday questions of life. I'm thankful that this fall we have the opportunity to meet on Wednesday night and we're going to discuss some difficult cultural questions where the gospel engages it. The question we're going to deal with this week is can't we just be good without God? And then we're going to have to have the follow-up conversations with that. If, If we can't just be good without God, then why do Christians think that they get to define what's good and evil? Or how should a Christian act in a perverted culture that so devalues human life to the point that it not only allows for abortion, but describes it as birth control? We truly do live in a crooked and perverse nation among whom we need to shine as lights. And our goal as those that have the opportunity to work with your teens is that we could come alongside you as parents and help you with your teens to have a gospel-minded thinking process as we live in the midst of this culture. We have opportunities for our teens to work alongside our adults and teach others to learn to serve and experience the joy in serving Christ, though it's hard, and as a church to begin to prepare them to be the next leaders of the church. Another opportunity we have, you've seen it in the announcements, is the upcoming Trunk or Treat. It's a great opportunity for us to reach out into our community. 
But you say, how does an activity like giving out candy and having games accomplish the mission of living worthy of the gospel of Christ? You know, we may not have a great opportunity to share the definition of the gospel with a visitor, but we need to be ready to give that answer. If a member of the community just happens upon the church and walks up and asks you, why are you doing this as a church? What will your answer be? Will it simply be, we want to provide a safe place for our children to come and get candy? Okay, we may be accomplishing that, but is that why we as Highlands Baptist Church are doing it? No, the reason we are doing it is so that we can impact the community around us. Will your answer be something like, we wanted to create a safe place for kids, and as a church family, we decided it would be a fun way to serve our community and to allow everyone to know that as a church, we care about the young needs of families. We care about our families. And then you know what? You might have an opportunity to come and invite them to a Sunday service. Our purpose needs to be invitation, bringing them to a point where they can hear the gospel, not just, hey, kid, here's your candy. Time to go. Okay? Our goal needs to be to do that, to, to share the gospel. I realize it's, it may not be easy to give up your Saturday evening, but it's an opportunity we have to serve one another, that we can have joy together in serving Christ. Perhaps there are people that are going to visit and they've been told by friends, parents, or grandparents, or maybe because of the way they've been treated in the past by a church, they don't even want to walk through the doors of that church. I have a man that worked for me who said he will never set foot in a church. We had a job come up in a church, and he said, I can't do it. Kept on and kept on, and he finally walked into the church to do some IT work. Very intimidating, you know? He walked in, and you know, a few weeks later, I was able to invite him to come to a service with us because that stigmatism was overcome. You know what? There might be a parent who says, I've never walked into that church. That is a scary place. And all of a sudden, their eight-year-old girl has to use the restroom in the middle of their trick-or-treating activity. And they're looking for a restroom. And we simply let them walk through those doors, go down the hallway and into the restroom. And that stigmatism is gone. And now we have more of an opportunity to invite them to come back. Let me invite the music team to come forward because I know that we're running short on time. And there's many, many ministries of the church. Those are just three that I wanted to highlight. But in conclusion, let me ask you this. Can you identify with this team that Paul was writing to? Are you encouraged by the atonement of Christ? Have you experienced this unconditional love of God? Are you participating in the Spirit to show compassion and sympathy? If not, maybe you identify with the Philippian jailer who simply asked, what must I do to be saved? If, if that is you this morning, let me encourage you to get the answer to that question before you leave here today. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. Come talk to one of the members here at the Highlands. Ask us, what must I do to be saved? If you're saved, let me ask you this question. Are you actively putting your salvation to work? James says that faith without works is dead. I do not want a dead faith. I want a faith that is alive and living and impacting this community. If you're holding back, you're holding back in fear. If your fear is because of a lack of knowledge or skill in using God's word, may I encourage you, take advantage of the equipping classes. Take advantage of the Bible studies. Study God's word on your own. Read some good Christian books on some of the passages of Scripture. Get yourself equipped so you feel confident in proclaiming and training and working together with this body of believers here at Highlands. If you feel equipped, and my experience is that you never feel completely equipped, okay? I'm just saying. I, just, I think I'll die feeling like I still need to learn more and experience more and grow more. 
But if you're not participating, why not? If there's a quarrel or a division like Paul is going to address in chapter 4, make that right so that we as a body of Christ can unified work together. Can you identify an area of ministry in which you can participate? I hope you can. I hope you are participating. As we leave here today, I hope you can leave with this one question in mind. And that goes back to the mission statement in chapter 1, verse 27. Am I living worthy of the gospel of Christ by putting my salvation to work? The unity of the Holy Spirit, I just want to point this out, is amazing what the Holy Spirit does. We're going to sing in just a minute, Let Your Kingdom Come. That is a song I would have chosen as a conclusion to this message. But think about that in the context of how all of this logistically happened. It's only because of the Holy Spirit that that song was chosen a couple weeks ago. Because no one, including myself, knew that I was going to be here this morning bringing this message until yesterday evening. That is the Holy Spirit. I am participating with him. This church is participating. And it's exciting to see God work and how he brings those things together when we're working and striving together for a common goal. Let's close in a word of prayer.